Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you will take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we're learning a lot from Peter. Uh, he only wrote, uh, as a human author, of only two books in the Bible, First and Second Peter. He was a major personality, no doubt, uh, in the Bible, but only two books, but yet they're so filled with things that help us in a practical way as we too live in a society and a world that is forever becoming more hostile toward Christianity, where persecution is always in front of us and the possibility of it increasing always in, in front of us. Uh, he calls the believers exiles and aliens and because that's what they are to the world. They're exiles, the living um, apart from their heavenly home because we're citizens in heaven, but we also live in this world. We are not of the world, but we live in this world, and we're exiles in this world, and uh, we're aliens in this world. We don't breathe the same air that the world breathes. We're different. We're to be a people that are different, a called-out people that are different. Let me read the passage that we'll be considering this morning. Uh, it, the, the bigger context is chapter 2, verses 11, uh, on into chapter 3, verse 7. But let me just read the one little section that we will be considering this morning. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Then verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. One of the things the Bible does not do for us is tell us that in this life, all the wrongs that we experience will be vindicated, will be made right. We're not given that promise. Uh, we're not given the promise that everybody is going to end up supporting and defending what we believe and being on board with what we believe. That we aren't going, the Bible doesn't make no promise that we're not going to suffer unjustly. In fact, we're promised that we will, and we're told that we will. And the Bible also doesn't tell us to abandon the culture. It tells us to be, to be dual citizens, a citizen of heaven and a citizen of this world. Uh, we are to submit to those authorities that God has placed into our lives. And, and that's what we've been learning in this section um, how to do evangelism as exiles, how to uh, pre present the gospel, to, to promote the gospel in the midst of all the hostility around us, how to do exile evangelism, as one author called it. Peter says, that's your mission while you are here. Let them see your good deeds, verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2 says, that they might glorify God that they might be drawn to our Savior and believe in Him. It's your good deeds that you put on display. It's not just your words, but it's your life that is to be the message that people see. 
He gives an evangelism sandwich, Ken Ramey says, in the, in the book of 1 Peter. Let me show you those verses. Here's the first slice of bread. Look at 1 Peter 3.14. 1 Peter 3.14. Because that's a theme of this book. Suffering, yes, but evangelism also. Two major themes of the, of the book. But, if even, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And then the other slice of bread. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. We studied those earlier. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then go to 1 Peter 3, uh, 3.15, and right there you have what goes in between these two slices. This is the evangelism sandwich, as Ken Ramey calls it. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter is very much concerned that Gentiles, unbelievers, be saved. Even in the midst of the persecution they are causing you and causing us, they are still the mission field. And he says, you need to be thinking about how to reach them. It's not a time to run and hide. It's a time to present our gospel both in words and in our lives. And he's telling them people need to see the transforming power of the gospel. That's what the world needs to see, friends. They need to see that the gospel changes us, that we're just not like everybody else. That is what I believe these first three examples that he has given to us, submission to government, submission to your employer or masters, slaves and masters in this context, and wives to their difficult husbands. Chapter three, verses one through seven. That's not, you wouldn't choose that. You would not choose that as your evangelism method. You would not choose submission, like I said last week. If we, were org, if we were trying to come up with a way to present the gospel, we would not think like this. I want something more comfortable. I'd rather just pass out tracts. Or I'd rather just invite people to church, which are good things. But those are things that cost you nothing. You don't have to change anything to do that. But there's something about submission, lining yourself up under ungodly government, ungodly employer, and a difficult husband that says something to the world that an invitation to church and a gospel track will not do. Just something about that cost that I have to go through, the pain of that, when everything within me wants to do otherwise, when everything within me wants to get even, when everything within me wants to make it right, when I see unjust suffering going on. 
I want to be heard, and I want to be vindicated, and I want it now. But to hold up under unjust treatment, whether it's government or whether it's an employer or whether it's in a marriage. Because your response is going to be different. It should be different. That's Peter's point. You express a hope that the normal human, the normal person in their flesh does not have. And so, I think this probably surprised the believers that got this message, that got this letter from Peter. When they read it, they probably covered their mouths and when they read things like, look at 13 and 14. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors or, or whatever the institution is. Because just a few decades later, Jesus had been crucified by a Roman government. Peter, do you recall that? Do you recall that ungodly government that did not uphold justice and righteousness? And do you recall that Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin? You say submit to these institutions. Did you recall what they did and how they lied about him and what they, all the, how they betrayed their role to uphold justice? And Peter, do you recall on the day of Pentecost, right after the church was formed, how King Herod uh, uh, starts persecuting the church and puts James to death? Do you recall that? And he, he, was so, he was so motivated by the response of the people that he wanted to put you, Peter, even to death because everybody liked what he was doing. Do you recall that, Peter? Honor the king, verse 17 says. And he says the reason you do that is because you fear God. You fear God. You fear God because when you fear God, you recognize, and this is the only way you can honor the king, by the way, fear God because you recognize God is sovereign. God is over the king. I'm not told to fear the king. I'm told to fear God. Honor the king. The only reason I can honor the king, as we said last week, is because we fear God. And we know God has raises up and God puts down. That there's something higher than politics. There's something higher than governments. It's a sovereign God who's in charge of everything. He's in charge of every election that takes place. He's in charge of every appointment of every judge that gets appointed. He's in charge of every government institution on the planet. Don't you know I have the power to take your life? Pilate said to Jesus, you wouldn't have that power if it wasn't given to you by God. Jesus said. So every, and that's why we're to respect and honor. That's why we're to pray for them. First Timothy chapter two. I like what Ben prayed this morning. There would be repentance and there would be a fear of you and our leaders. Because they are going to be held accountable. They have been given a delegated authority and one day they will stand before God. Titus three says we're to honor the, those who lead us and, and not malign them slander them or tear them down speak yes in all the avenues that we've been given to bring about change and and rightful protest and all those things yes that's all fine but we cross the line sometimes we cross the line 
to where it becomes a personal agenda. Just always keep yourself rooted in the scripture. Do that. Keep yourself rooted in the Bible when you see injustice. To keep it from becoming something more emotional and something more personal and something more slanderous. We cross that line all the time. I do. You do. Just keep your thoughts in the Bible. Keep your concerns rooted to the Scripture. And so your mind does not go to some personal agenda and you start to sound unforgiving and you, t- you alienate yourself from the mission field. That's the concern that Peter has. Everybody picks on the government. Everybody talks bad about their employer. Sometimes women berate their husbands and the other way around as well because they're difficult to live with. But what stands out to the world are people that don't do that. People that recognize there's a sovereign God that's over all of this. And so he just wants us to, he wants us to recognize that. You're going to see that in this passage this morning because he's going to talk about masters and slaves. Now this is a tough one. This is a tough one to get our minds around. But I think the common uh, application for us would be employer and employee. I'll explain that as we look at this. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. He's talking to Christian slaves here. Understand that. And there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that are addressed to Christian slaves. Because in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was a way of life. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and they performed all kinds of tasks. Some of them were employed as doctors, some of them were employed as teachers, some of them were musicians, some of them did manual labor. It was a variety of tasks. They were just basically non-Roman citizens. They were lower class. They were viewed as lower class. But they basically did everything. A Roman citizen, and richly, which eventually brought down the fall of the Roman Empire, they were just very, very lazy Romans. They had a horrible work ethic. Let the slaves do it. Pampered idleness, one writer says. When we think of slaves, we think of certainly our country in the 17 and 1800s. We think of the horrors of that. And that was horrible. And I'm not even saying that Roman slavery didn't have its horrible sides as well. Because you were property. You were owned by your master. And you were at his whims. And it could be brutal or it could be pleasant. Kidnapping. Uh, Kidnapping in... The 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, kidnapping your own people and selling them into slavery. In Rome, it could be conquering a nation and all those people would come in as non-citizens, but they would be slaves to the empire. You could be an indentured servant. You could be one who is trying to pay off a debt, but you were a slave. That could not be happened to a Roman citizen, but it could happen to a slave. You could be a freedman, meaning you bought your freedom. You're no longer a slave. Didn't mean you were necessarily a citizen, but you weren't a slave any longer. 
There was a high percentage of slaves in the early church. There were not many noble, not many wise, not many, I mean, we're talking about people who were not at the top of the social ladder at all. We're talking about people who were at the bottom in terms of Roman society. That was the structure of Roman society. That was the structure of that, that world at that time. And in fact, folks, that's, that has been the structure of the world for many economies throughout the history of mankind. Instructions are even given in the Old Testament of how to treat slaves. And they're never told in the New Testament to break free from that slavery. You would think, well, well whoa, what's that all about? But they were encouraged to remain in the social strata in which they were in. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Stay in 1 Peter and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. Each man, verse 20 says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, go ahead and do that. If you can get, be free from slavery, that's fine. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman, and otherwise you are free in Christ. You're just like your master in that sense. It's level playing field there. There's no, there's no bond servant. There's, we're all the same. You're free in Christ. You may be in the social strata a slave, but in Christ you're free. For you are called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he was called while free as Christ's slave. You became Christ's slave. You're not, you're free. You're not free to do whatever you want as a Christian. No, you belong to Christ and you are his slave. And your master is, if he's a Christian, he's Christ's slave as well. We're all slaves. We have a master. And he says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. That means don't fall into sinful slavery. That means do not fall into the slave of the, of the ways of men. Do not fall into uh, slave, you're letting your flesh get enslaved. Because you belong to Christ. You've been bought with a price. That's a warning to all of us. We don't want to be enslaved to anybody or anything except Christ. In the book of Philemon, you maybe remember the story. Philemon was a, a leader of the church at Colossae. And he had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. He runs away to the city of Rome. By God's sovereignty, he encounters the Apostle Paul. Onesimus the slave is led to Christ. And you would have thought, well, Paul might have said, okay, you're in Christ now, throw off this slavery. Get rid of it, you don't have to worry about it anymore. No, you know what he says? He says, Onesimus, for your integrity and for your own sanctification, you need to do the right thing. You need to go back to Philemon in Colossae, and you need to seek his forgiveness. You need to reconcile with him. He is now your brother in Christ. You have more, you are more value to him than ever before. You need to go back. And you read in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 9, Onesimus, if we believe it's the same person, is pointed out as a faithful brother in Christ in the church at Colossae. The church, the early church had lots of slaves and they needed some instruction. They needed some instruction because you could be a slave and wonder, can I have, do I have any value in the kingdom of God? Can I make any kind of a difference in the kingdom of God? 
Does my social standing in society limit me in what I can do for the kingdom of God? He's going to show them that it does. It certainly can. You can read more in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. I don't think you should say, well, Paul was condoning slavery. Critics of the Bible and Christianity say Paul just condoned slavery. Not at all. Just simply equipping believers to live in the culture where slavery was pervasive, where slavery was an entrenched institution. That's just how it was. And and understand this, the Bible is not concerned so much about social order as it is about transforming people's hearts, no matter what situation they are in. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, I, I think what happens is you see the influence that Christianity has had in slavery being abolished. Wilberforce, others taking a stand against it biblically, you see the influence that's basically brought it to a halt throughout the world as an institution. It doesn't mean it's not practiced in some places, I'm sure it is. Peter just wants to make it clear that he understands the human heart. The natural tendency of all of us is to resist authority. We want to be autonomous. We want to be our own boss. We want to call our own shots. We don't want to line up under anyone else's authority. That is the human heart. I said a couple weeks ago, that is, or last week I said that in Sunday school, that is exactly what's going on in our society right now. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do it my way. You see it in transgenderism, homosexuality, and the abortion movement. I do not want any restraints on me. I do not want anybody imposing rules or morals or anything on me. I do not want God. I want to be God. That's the human heart. We are prone to demand our rights. And we demand our rights and we rebel. Anytime there's unfair treatment, we rebel. I was treated so terribly, I gotta get out of this job. I was treated bad in that job too, and that job too, and pretty soon you've got a resume that has six jobs in six months, and that used to be a bad resume. I don't know, maybe it's not anymore, but the point is the problem there is a heart that doesn't want to be treated unfairly, a heart that doesn't know how to deal with that, a heart that doesn't want vindication on this side of heaven. Verse 18, servants, the word servants, be submissive. Servants, line yourself up under their authority. And it's not the normal word actually for slave. That's doulos. This is not doulos. This is another word. It really has to do with a domestic, uh, a domestic uh, servant. Have you seen Downton Abbey? You know how that is? You get all these household servants doing all the work, and you get all these other people drinking tea and changing clothes all day. That's, that's the domestic servant. That shows Roman society beautifully with this idea. Joseph was a domestic servant in the house of Potiphar, eventually became his administrator. But none of them had any legal standing. In Downton Abbey they did, but these had no legal standing. 
Their whole world could be turned upside down on the whims of their master. And like I said before, it could be brutal or it could be a benevolent situation you never knew. But Peter's talking to both of them here. Talking to both of them here. And it's, uh, it's just telling a Christian slave, man, you can make a difference. <laughs> you can make a difference. This, this is the good deed you put on display that the unbeliever might believe in Jesus. And we're talking here, I think, in our context about employer and employee relationships. And, and if Jesus could change, radically change slaves' relationship with their masters, surely we can change our relationship with our employer and employees. They lived without any personal rights. They didn't have any benefits package. And they're sold to show respect for their master. How much, how about us? We have no excuse. We are given so much. So much. We have no right to disrespect and disobey those who are in authority over us. Maybe you're saying, but Rod, you do not know my boss. You don't know my teacher or whatever authority God has placed over me. God has ordained authority. All of us are to be under some authority. He's just, he's just ordered society like that to, to make it flourish, to make it run smooth. You have authority and those who submit to that authority. You don't have any idea about how unreasonable my boss is. Well, Peter says, not only to those, see in that verse, to those who are good and gentle, you still submit, but to those who are unreasonable. And the word there is scoliosis. It's the curvature of the spine. You've heard that before. Basically, he's crooked. He's got a crooked spine. He's hard to live with. It's hard to be around. We naturally show respect to the person who we respect. I don't need a command to tell me to respect somebody that I respect already. I don't, I don't need commands for that. I don't need a command to tell me to love somebody I don't, that I already love. But I need commands from God and power from God to respect people I don't respect and love people I cannot love or find it very difficult to love. But that's exactly what he says to do here. We cannot let the way we're treated condition how we're going to respond is the point. Peter's going to say, let this command stand. No matter what the situation, let this command stand. Submit to your employer. It's easy to feel trapped in situations. Maybe that's how you feel about your job this morning. I don't know. These people certainly would have felt trapped at times. It's easy to belittle your boss. It's easy to talk about your boss. It's easy to talk about the difficult conditions you have to work in and patterns and all that and the, the bent that they have and that kind of thing and how hard they are to deal with. But a mark of the gospel is not talking like everybody else. I can't tell you how many times I've stood in line at a grocery store or something like that, and I've just heard the employees talking back and forth with each other, oblivious to the fact there's a line of customers there, and they're just they're talking about the bad working conditions they're in. I mean, I just, I'm just sitting there going, this is, incra- this is crazy. Or other places, and there's just employees just talking back and forth, I'm thinking, man, that's the flesh. That's how the flesh works. I don't like the conditions I'm in. It's unfair. I have rights. 
And see, if you're focused on being happy, if you're focused on being self-fulfillment, on self-fulfillment, all that, this is going to be a hard command for you. It's a hard command. It's going to be very hard. Because we must have our eyes fixed on God and His glory, and not ours. We must have our eyes fixed on God and what brings glory to Him in, di- in, in every difficult relationship we have. How, how can I please God is the question that we should be asking ourselves, not how can I be happy or in this situation. Listen, I'm not saying you don't ever seek to make things better. That's certainly, there are avenues to do that in. But what a testimony in the break room when everybody else is complaining and you're not. When everybody else is bad-mouthing the boss and you're not. Demonstrating to, to everyone around you that you're confident in God. That he's in charge. That he's in control of the situation. You will stick out. You will be noticed and they will wonder what is different about you. How are you doing something uncommon and unnatural? Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You see, the, the word there, the conscience, it's really the best wording of that is the conscience turned toward God, uh, of God or toward God. The, the reason a believer can bear up is because he's conscious of God. That's it. He fears God. He he recognizes God is in this. See, there's no sacred and secular in the mind of God in the Bible. It's all sacred. God goes with me to work, not just to church. My faith goes with me to work, not just to church. It has to be lived out. It has to be lived out in those kinds of places when you're around those who or the mission field. This is how exiles evangelize. This is what Peter's saying. This is how exiles evangelize. It's not just a track and it's not just an invitation to church. It's I'm doing something supernatural. I'm showing them that the gospel is powerful. It transformed my life. It's, it's the hope that is within me. Verse 15 of chapter 3. It's what makes me tick. It's why I do what I do. It's what makes my life stand out and makes it different. I can be like everybody else so easily. I'm naturally bent that way. But what I'm not bent towards is this supernatural grace that enables me to bear up under unjust treatment. So you're conscious of God, that verse is saying. You're conscious of God that your real boss is not the man with the title but your real boss is God. <laughs> I'm doing this to please God. I'm doing this to please Him. I'm here because of Him. My job is not an end in itself. My job is an opportunity to bring glory to God. It's a means by which I can put the gospel on display. It's a means by which I can adorn the gospel. I can make the gospel attractive to the world. Just aware, awareness of His presence. So, turn to Ephesians 6 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6 is just a 
a parallel passage to this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. But just to emphasize the conscience towards God or to fear God. And verse 5 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh. This is your boss. This is who you work under. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So you obey them. You respect them. Uh, you don't do it grudgingly. You don't do it with a bad attitude. You respect that person. Um, the attitude is just as important to God as the action. He's saying sincerity of heart. A heart that is, is true before God will bear under that scrutiny, scrutiny of God. Every, every Christian should desire to be a faithful employee. If you're, if you're employed, you should desire to be a faithful employee. You should see your job as a means to bring glory to God. That's what it says. You've got to have the vertical perspective. That's what he says at the end of the verse, as to Christ. I do this as to Christ. I do it as to Christ. Every, in fact, every relationship in your life has this, as to Christ. Look at uh, 522. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Oh, why? Because they're such wonderful guys and they do everything right and they're just so, uh, da, da, you know. No, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That's your model. That's your standard. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey in the Lord. Doesn't mean just if you, only if your parents are Christians. That's not what it's talking about. It's, this is the Lord's command. Honor your mother and your father. The very next verse. You do it because God says to do it. Not just because mom and dad say, you do this because I said so. No, you do it. You do it because God says so. It's a vertical, it's, it's a, it's a vertical perspective on everything. Then you see in uh, chapter 6, verse 4, Father, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Bring them up in the fear of the Lord. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether you then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. See, that's the vertical relationship I'm talking about. I can't do it otherwise. I can't do it if it's not connected to something bigger than me and bigger than this person and bigger than the circumstances. It's got to be something greater and bigger. Verse 6, back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This is, listen, that is our motivation, to please God, not to be men pleasers, not to, not to live on the horizontal level. That is the lowest level of living for a Christian, to live on the level of trying to please men more than you're trying to please God. Very low level of existence. It's a snare to fear man and not fear God. Verse 7, with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men. As to the Lord. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. 
See, someday God is going to balance the scales, and someday uh, this should encourage all of us, no matter what the unjust treatments are. Listen, my heart cries out with a sense of justice like yours does. All these unjust things come to me, come at me, and I'm just saying, God, make it right, make it right. And one day, one day, especially the slaves of that day, Paul's saying, one day God will reward you. Your life can count for God in those difficult situations. That's what he's saying. You can have a testimony to the world. You can have a heart, an evangelistic life, that, a life that evangelizes those around you because of how you live and how you respond and how you deal with unjust suffering. And then he says something to the masters. I didn't really go into this, but there are other passages where he gives the master's instructions as well. These are to Christian masters. He says, and do the same thing. This would be employers. Do the same to them and, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Verse 20, for what credit? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? We'll stop at that part of the verse. So he's talking about suffering unjustly from the previous verse. Peter says, it's one thing to suffer unjustly. It's another thing to be punished for doing something wrong. If you get pulled over for running a red light after church today, just because it's Sunday, don't try to connect it to something spiritual and call it persecution. That's not persecution. That's justice. That's justice. That's punishment for doing something wrong, for not doing the right thing. If your supervisor is constantly having to tell you about the lack of quality of your work or you're always late for work or you're having a bad attitude or whatever, that is not persecution. That is a fair evaluation. What credit is there? Read on in the verse. What credit is there means a good report. Listen, you don't get credit for making a nuisance of yourself. You don't get credit for being lazy, for being sloppy, or for being tardy, or for being a resentful employee. And just because your boss saw you pray before lunch for 10 seconds, that's not the issue. The issue is what are you like from 9 to 5? If you're not going to be a good employee from 9 to 5, stop praying at lunch. That's a bad testimony to say you're a Christian. And for the other Christians you work with, if you're going to be that kind of employee that would pray before lunch and be one who doesn't represent Christ from nine to five, there's no credit in that, as he's saying in this verse. There's no credit in that kind of reputation. But notice in verse 20, if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, you patiently endure it, in other words, when you may be mocked because of your testimony or maybe when you're overlooked for something uh, or maybe when someone else takes the credit for something that you did or maybe because uh, just 
I don't know, different things that you're disrespected in your job or something like that. Maybe it can be traced to your testimony for Christ, maybe not. But the point is, you take that without superiority or pride and you hold up under that. That's what he's saying in verse 20. And graciously carry the load as you depend on the Lord to carry you. He's going to say in, later in this section when he starts talking about Christ's example of, of suffering unjustly, he's going to say Christ kept entrusting himself to God. Folks, there's times you just have to do that. God, I just give this one to you. I, I mean, I'm, it's making me mad. I'm struggling with it, God. I have to give this one to you. I don't get the injustice. I, I don't like it. I'm falsely accused, or whatever it is that's going on in the situation. You, it never lets up, either. <laughs> but you depend on the Lord to carry you. And Peter writes at the end of the verse, this finds favor with God. Now, see, that's the question. Do you want God to be, uh, to, to, do you want to find favor with God? Do you want to please God or not? Because that's where it boils down to. Pleasing God or pleasing myself. See, that's the greatest payoff right there. This gracious commendation of God, that God is pleased. God is pleased when I do that. And and that grace just permeates your life when he does that. And You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 5, he says, love your enemies. This had to be shocking to the Jews to say that because they would say, hate your enemies. You don't have to love your enemies. They would say, hate your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then you will be as sons of your father. You'll be like your father who is in heaven. And then he says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you just love somebody because they love you, you're no different than a tax collector. They do the same thing. There's nothing supernatural about that. There's nothing that stands out about that. There's nothing that draws attention to anything about that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? There's nothing praiseworthy about just loving and respecting and appreciating people that appreciate you. But God doesn't want our conduct to be explained in the natural. He wants our conduct to be explained in the supernatural. That's what Peter is saying in all this section. Make the gospel, show the gospel off. Adorn it so it's shown power to be powerful, transforming in our lives. Very difficult for American Christians. This is very difficult for us. We read this and go, Because we're trained by our culture to stand up for rights. We're trained by our culture to look out for ourselves. We're trained by our culture to be independent. We're trained by our culture to make situations, confront situations. We're entitled to things. We make that the most important thing, what I'm entitled to. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose... This is what Jesus called you for. 
Jesus called you. He did not hide the fine print from you when he called you. When he called you to salvation, that's what the word is. He called you to salvation. He told you, come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross. He told you it was not going to be easy. He told you that it was going to be difficult. The world will hate hated him. It will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus did not hide the fine print from us. He told us that all this up front. It's unfortunate that American Christianity has become such an accommodation of the flesh. You've been called to suffering and you've been called to patiently endure it. Sometimes we just have to endure, folks. Sometimes we just have to get up in the morning, put one foot in front of the other, and move out and go forward and just do what is right. Even though everything else inside of us is screaming to do something else, we have to say, I want to please God. I want my actions to bring favor from God. I do not want to be about pleasing me today. That is hard. And that takes grace. And that takes a power that you do not have in yourself. It takes the supernatural power of God working in us to make us a people who look different from those around us. And it's how we respond to our government. And it's how we respond to who we work for in the workplace. I may never see those in government. I may never run into those in government in the grocery store, but I certainly run into those people I work with all the time. And he's going to narrow it on down next in a couple of weeks into the home. Supernatural, powerful gospel transforms us and changes us. He says in that verse that Christ also suffered for you. It's not just a, a, a platitude, it's Christ suffered for you. He did it, He's your example, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Consider him who went through all kinds of hostility against himself. Hebrews says, he is our pattern. He is our example. He tells us how to defeat temptation. You know, sometimes believers dismiss the fact that Christ was our example. You know what they say? I've heard people say this. Well, of course, he was God. He was God. Of course, he could do that. No, understand this. In his humanity, Christ came into this world and lived as a man. He laid aside, he laid aside the use of his divine attributes, depended on the Holy Spirit. The very thing he calls you and I to do. When he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he was hungry after 40 days of fasting. Satan says, hey, your God, you can bypass this humanity thing, turn those stones into bread and you got a meal. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. He went through the suffering. Peter wanted to kill the, the Roman guard to stop them from arresting Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No. I could call thousands, I could call legions of angels if I wanted to. No, I must go through this suffering. He had you and I in mind when he went through that suffering because he knew we would go through suffering and he's able to be our high priest, the one that we can run to when we're suffering and we're dealing with injustices because he faced it as well. And he's our example. He's our example. That's how we suffer. 
We suffer by following our example. We suffer by depending on His grace to give us the strength to respond in ways that our flesh does not want to. I read these verses just like you, and I go, Dear God, that is not me. That is not me. God, help us all. I want to bring glory to you. It's not about me pleasing me. It's about me pleasing you. And this is what he's called us to, friends. And, as, and that's the question. Do you want to please him or please yourself? See, if you're, not, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, this is foreign to you. This is foreign to you. You don't even understand why this would be a struggle for us as Christians in our flesh. You see, Jesus came into the world to die for people who are selfish, who are sinfully selfish and think about themselves. Jesus died for people who came into the world, died for people who came into the, when he came into, excuse me, when he came into the world to die for those who rejected God, who had sin and dishonored God and were separated from God. And he came to be the one, the sacrifice that was necessary to make salvation possible. If you're not a Christian, you can't even apply what I'm talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 2. You need to first put your trust and faith in Christ and believe in Him. Embrace Him. But if you're a Christian, these words are for you this morning and for me. That we might be people who bring glory to our Savior. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for your word and thank you for your truth. Just love you and praise you. May we be a church that puts you on display. May we be a church that doesn't just do it the way the world does it or cultural Christianity does it. May we be a people that are radical, radical in the way we respond to things in life. May we show the world Jesus, not just in our words, but in our actions. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.